The following podcast contains explicit language. Welcome to Mom and Dad are Fighting, Slate's parenting podcast for Thursday, June the 29th, the aggressive little hugger edition. I'm Gabriel Roth, an editor at Slate and the dad of Eliza, age six, and Leo, who is just on the cusp of turning three. I'm Rebecca Lavoie, a journalist and podcaster in New Hampshire. I'm the mom of Henry, who is almost 16, Teddy, who is 14, and I have a stepdaughter, Lily, who is 17. And I am Carvel Wallace, uh, a freelance writer living in Oakland, California, and I am the father of Georgia, who is 11, and Ezra, who is 14. This week, uh, we've got a call from a listener whose former nanny has a terminal illness, and she's not sure how to talk to her kids about it. And we've got another from a mother whose son has been going a bit too far with the hugs. And, of course, triumphs and fails, parenting recommendations. And on Slate Plus, Rebecca will update us on the latest developments in her domestic soap opera. (laughs) But first, here's a call from a listener who has some feedback on last week's episode. Hi, Mom and Dad are fighting. Uh, I just wanted to call in response to your most recent podcast um, when you had a caller call in and ask about having another child. Um, I wanted to say, fuck you guys. Uh, you said some things that were really hurtful and insensitive to people who either have only children or who have older children and are thinking of uh, having another one. Uh, I have a six-year-old, and it took us until this year when he went to kindergarten um, to get past stuff like postpartum depression and relationship problems and financial problems that all come up when you have a kid and it totally disrupts your life. Um, it's not, you know, just an accessory. It actually affects your life. Um, and uh, we've only just started to get ready to think about having another kid. Our son uh, really wants a sibling, but according to you guys, um, either choice we make now is a bad one because only children are miserable and weird, and uh, you don't want to have children that are spaced too far apart because they won't be able to enjoy having a sibling. So, um I don't know, maybe think through how you respond to some of these questions and how um, not every listener has all the same choices as you guys do. Thanks. Oof. Ouch. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) No one loves to hear that they have been hurtful or insensitive. Um, Yeah, so, I mean, I I guess, yeah, I was, I mean, the first thing I want to say is, like, obviously, like, it's never our intention to be hurtful or insensitive to anyone who listens to this show. Uh, and so hearing that definitely lands with difficulty for me. Um, and also, you know, I I don't know. I mean, Rebecca and Gabe can speak for themselves. I felt like I was responding mostly to the to the caller's question, which was this thing of, I want to have a second kid, maybe, but I want some clarity on how far apart they should be and uh, if if we should do it or if it's going to be too overwhelming. And, you know, the advice that I gave was based on that. I have two kids. I was an only child. I know that having one kid <laughs> disrupts your life tremendously. Like, that is an experience that we have had. And uh, so, yeah, we were a little flip about it. The I assume, and if not, I need to state this clearly, that like every family can work in every combination. And I have two kids and they're both super weird. I was an only child. I was tremendously weird and still am. And so, uh, so I, you know, that my advice was coming from that place. If a caller had called up and said, Hey, I only want to have one kid, but I'm thinking about having another, but I, you know, I feel like I want to keep it at one, but I'm afraid that 
if I do that, bad things will happen, then my advice would absolutely have been do what you're comfortable with because families can work in all combinations. I feel like one of the things I've had to learn as a parent is that um, that someone having a different point of view on my parenting decisions doesn't necessarily have to translate to their actual judgment of me or judgment of me that matters, mm-hmm. right? Because people are going to have all kinds of fucking opinions. And ever since my first kid, who's now 14 and just went off on a bus to sleepaway camp, both my kids did this morning, ever since that child was a tiny little thing that I could hold in one hand, parents on the street were telling me I was doing it wrong. Family members were telling me I was doing it wrong. Well, you shouldn't hold them in one hand. <laughs> <laughs> hey, he made it. He was football-sized. <laughs> Um, And so, you know, and like, so I think on the one hand, as a parent, we have to do a better job of of not judging. But on the other hand, as parents, we have to do a better job at not taking other people's opinions seriously, because everyone fucking has an opinion. And uh, and uh, but primarily, and I think Gabe really said this last week, the most beautiful thing about any family combination is that um, having kids is a wonderful thing if that's what you want to do and um any combination any style kids that are 12 years apart kids that are one year apart one kid two kids three kids nine kids it all works and i I guess i want to re-clarify that and again i want to apologize for the people that i made feel uncomfortable because that's never my intention uh, especially in a situation like this which is already fraught she fucking gets it, right? Like she's just like, screw you guys, <laughs> like, and and she and she just sort of came back and was like, this is how I feel about it, and and that's fine. And I I, I agree with everything that Carvel said. Of course, we don't mean to hurt anybody's feelings, but you know where I come from, it is okay to say things like. You know, only children are weird. I mean, that is something that like every only child I know who is an adult says <laughs> and every child, every only child I know who is a, a child often says there is something that has been lost with being able to have a sense of humor about kids. And, and you know, you just said, Carvel, that your your two kids are both really weird. Like mine are, too. I could tell you stories about both of them that would, you know, curl your toes, like not in a good way. Um, And I think that that the key here is that there is this, I think, issue when people really do regard their kids as the most perfect, wonderful, uh, inside a bubble people in the world, completely immune. And like, and and we, we should not in any way ever say anything about them that is you know, humorous or, you know, maybe a little bit snarky because they are just people also. And I don't know. I mean, I when I, I read some of the responses um, last week and I thought, man, like, <laughs> it's just like, this is like rough because I, this is sort of lending to the, the narrative of like the only kid weirdness in a way when you see this like incredibly fraught response to what clearly was a flip and sort of fun way of dealing with that particular woman's question. I mean, I think it was clear to me that she was interested um, in in having a second child. And I that's why I responded the way that I did and and made that joke. It certainly, of course, uh, was not intended to tell you, listener, that you like little Bobby or Janie is actually weird. But um, they are weird, do, though. <laughs> they they, they might be. Especially Janie. She's and a I, freak. And, but I, sure I think it is, oh, it is absolutely freak, okay to laugh about kids, right? Because that's that is the way we all are going to be able to get through it. You know, it, it just is. And 
I don't know. It's hard for me to apologize about saying something funny <laughs> about kids. Um, I do apologize for feelings of hurt that 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 came about as a result. But I, I just I do want to make it clear, like Carvel does, that's never the intention here. But sometimes it's going to happen because this is also, frankly, even though we're taping it, it's kind of like live radio. It's a conversation between people, and sometimes that's going to happen. We 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 said what we said. Everybody should have kids whenever they want to have kids, and that is the end of my parent. My should you have kids advice? I mean, uh, or don't. Up to you. Um, all right. <laughs> Thanks for the calls. Uh, it's time now for triumphs and fails. Uh, Rebecca, you're up. All right. So my triumph relates to food. Um, you know, I gosh, it's my my kids have always been like relatively adventurous eaters, and I've always been very grateful for that, but. Yesterday, it kind of—I I think I hit sort of peak uh, experience in that regard. We went yesterday as a family uh, with two extras, with two, with, uh, two plus ones, to um, a big concert in uh, Gillette Stadium where the Patriots play. We saw the U2 show that had just came to our town. And so we had to rent a minivan to like bring all six of us down there, and we show up. And because my wonderful husband has a ton of anxiety about things like travel and arriving places on time, like we are those people who have to be at the airport three hours early for no reason. No, oh, I'm like um, your husband with that. <laughs> and because, frankly, as I tweeted yesterday, I am not cool enough to show up at a concert at nine when the ticket says seven on it, even though I know it's not going to start till nine. Uh, all things being said, we arrived, you know, three and a half hours early to this show. And uh, Gillette Stadium is surrounded by this huge, like, outdoor mall called Patriot Place. And it was starting to fill up uh, with exactly who you think it would fill up with before a U2, a U2 show, like 40 and 50-something uh, white people. Uh, very rapidly, like at you know at the, between the 4 and 7 o'clock hours, we were kind of sitting, Kevin and I, um, at this like swanky bowling alley bar having Moscow Mules. And we left our table, which we never should have done, because then it was like 5 o'clock, and we were trying to find a place to eat before the show, and every place had like a two-hour waiting time. So we were texting with the kids, um, you're saying like, where are you? You know, we'll try to find a place to eat. Just come meet us. We put in our name at a bunch of places and said we had a table for six. You know, that's what we needed. And we were kept getting this answer like two hours, two and a half hours wait. Um, and then I get a text back from Teddy, who with his little friend Maddie from middle school had on their own, gone and sat down at a sushi restaurant on their own and ordered food. And it was just texting me plates of like eel and avocado and like all this food that they were eating. And he was just like, hey, mom, no, we're good. You just need a table for four. It's cool. Um, decided to like spend the money he had brought for a T-shirt on uh, sushi for he and his friend. And I just thought, A, how great is it that he was comfortable walking into a restaurant, you know, surrounded by all of these adults and asking for a table, sitting down? I just made sure, like, you know, to get, leave a tip, right? And then ordering, like, eel and avocado and int introducing his friend to some new uh, foods, too, because he was like, it's awesome. You got to try it. And I just thought, this is it. This is the ultimate. We are completely out of ramen noodles and mac and cheese mode here. We are really out of it, like, like really out of it. And it felt really great. So that's my food triumph of the week. Bravo. Awesome. And he did leave a tip, 25%, which I was very proud of as well. Whoa, jeez. <laughs> well, you know, <laughs> was middle the school service math. Really, really special? <laughs> was it that good? <laughs> you might need to talk to him about that. Did they no. go above and beyond? <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I have one of those fails that's a continuing uh, saga that I've talked a little bit about before that I feel like is I'm trying to turn into a triumph because it has to do with my 11-year-old daughter who has just finished sixth grade and... Uh, 
whom I love tremendously and who is also in a pretty difficult phase of her behavior right now. And it's driving me a little bit up the wall. She is beginning to do this thing where she gets kind of mouthy, has like likes to say snarky things under her breath. And it's just she's just kind of beginning to feel her power, like in terms of being able to not be intimidated by discipline or parents or rules and it's obviously tremendously frustrating for me it's tremendously frustrating for her mom it's even frustrating for her brother who doesn't have a leg to stand on because he spent years doing that to us and now when he tries to counsel her she's like screw you pal um and so so yesterday it was i don't it's hard to even explain talk about kids being weird she was just being weird she was bouncing around and she had been at this sleepover and didn't get a lot of sleep and was like throwing a ball in the house and we were trying to get her not to do it and it was like a whole thing so at some point i was like i said to her look this is the way you've behaved this entire day has been a disappointment to me like you this i'm disappointed i'm like here making dinner i'm trying to clean up we're trying to keep the house clean you're over here like throwing potato chips everywhere and like enough's enough and her son, I mean, her brother, my son kind of like looked at her and was like, it's time to cool it, man. Like, come on, like, we got to calm down. And she just sort of gave me this like attitude, like, I'll do what I want kind of thing. And the rest of the evening went smoothly. We were kind of distant. I was talking to her mom about it today. And she said to me, you know, um, last night when I came home, because her mom was out, last night when I came home, I talked to Georgia and she said, you know, she was, she said that she, that you were like disappointed in her and that she didn't care. She didn't care anymore. People are disappointed in her. She's going to do what she wants, which I was like, that's actually kind of cool. And then she said, but then I just laid with her and we like read stories and stuff. And then she started to unfold to me. My ex-wife said that she was actually feeling kind of anxious about going to camp today, even though she's been three times. And, you know, she started unfolding some of her things. And she was to me, my ex said, you know, you, you have to make a container that's bigger than all her emotions. Because she was like, I feel like 99% of her behavior, I'm more interested in caring for her and giving her space than I am in, like, regulating her behavior. And I, like, struggled with that because I was like, well, where I grew up, you know, kids kids knew when to be quiet and blah, blah, blah. Like, that's kind of my background. And so I'm really struggling with this with my daughter because her mom is really like, you know, you've she's going through a lot. And if she feels like... Every time she expresses a feeling, you kind of shut her down on some decorum precedent, then she'll eventually just shut off to you. And that's not what you want. And I don't think that's what she wants or deserves either in her life. And I just she told me that this morning and I've been thinking about it ever since. And I'm really working and I want to get I want that. I want to have that. I want to have what what my ex-wife is talking about. And I'm struggling with it. And I believe because we grow as parents, I believe I'm going to get better at that. The thing I know that I want most with her is that I love her so much and I just want to have a working relationship with her because she's so great. She's one of my two favorite people in the world. And I feel really bad that right now we're in kind of a rocky place where our personalities are rubbing against each other. And she went off to camp. I won't see her for a week. And I'm hoping that when she comes back, I can find some way to reconnect and kind of put down my fear, anxiety, stress, embarrassment about her behavior uh, in order to give her some space. But I got to admit, I'm scared. I'm scared that if I don't regulate her behavior, then she'll have terrible manners and she'll curse out adults and everyone will look at me and say, what's wrong with your kid? That's the fear. And uh, I'm caught between these two places right now. So that's where I'm at with it. Hmm. 
Well, that's very well put, I think. Um, that, like, I know that urge to, like, y you want to just love them, but then at the same time, what they're doing is not okay, and you have to change that. <laughs> Got <laughs> to right. let them know it's not okay right now. Oh, yeah. It's the worst. <laughs> it's the worst. Um, <clears throat> I I had a small triumph. I um, My wife went away for this weekend, so I was with the kids by myself, which is, you know, it's like two solid days of, like, it's a lot of little kids. And, um, and I... In a way, I upped the difficulty level by scheduling the dentist for Saturday morning, but it turned out to it turned out to be a a, a, a clever move, I think, and I'll tell you why. Um, this was it was not an easy dentist visit. It was Leo's first ever visit to the dentist, and he was scared and didn't want to go. Eliza wound up having to get a filling, and so she was very uncomfortable and like that. But having like the first thing we did that weekend be this sort of slightly frightening adventure that then they could both triumph over adversity, it, it put me in a position where the rest of the day I could be giving them rewards. Like you guys did such a great job at the dentist that now we're going to Barnes and Noble and you can each pick a book and then we're going to McDonald's and you can get a happy meal for lunch. And then when we get home, you can definitely each pick a video. And like all of the stuff where I would be like, oh no, I have to regulate that stuff. That's a special treat. We don't get to do that. We, I had justified a whole bunch of special treats, which obviously if you're allowed to do like a million special treats, then parenting is really easy. So by putting by front loading all of the difficulty, I set myself up for a much easier weekend, and uh, we wound up having a really good time. Hmm. That was my triumph. Time now to do uh, a quick announcement. We want to tell you about the Gist with Mike Pesca, Slate's daily podcast, which covers politics and culture. If you've never listened to the Gist, do yourself a favor and take a listen. If you like this show, you will probably enjoy the Gist, and you can listen to it unlike this show every single day. Um, check out, for instance, last week's interview with the great Wallace Shawn. Uh, a lot of people know him as the the great character actor from The Princess Bride and, and Clueless. He's also um, a magnificent, one of the great modern playwrights, writes political plays like The Fever and The Designated Mourner. Uh, he made the film My Dinner with Andre, which a lot of people love. If you would like to hear Wallace Shawn talk about playing a, a dinosaur in a cartoon movie and also talk about income inequality and where America is headed, Check out The Gist every weekday afternoon at slate.com slash The Gist or wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, also, again, in Slate Plus this week, we will be hearing a little bit more of the special intimate details of Rebecca's family life that are not uh, that are too private for the mass public that, that only <laughs> only go out to the uh, intimate in the intimate confines of oh the Slate God. Plus segment it's, it's, of this podcast. It's the, it's the champagne room. If you mom, want to mom enter, and mom and dad are fighting. Oh, please, pri no, private VIP room. space. <laughs> if you want to go beyond that velvet rope. Uh, now is the time to join Slate Plus. You can do that uh, most easily and affordably by going to slate.com slash app, A-P-P. Download the new Slate iOS app and try Slate Plus for free for 90 days. You will get to hear that bonus segment and other bonus segments on all of your other favorite Slate podcasts. Okay, moving on. Here is a question from a listener named Hannah. Hi, Mom and Dad are fighting. This is Hannah calling from New Jersey. I have a really tough parenting question about how to handle the terminal illness of a former caregiver. My uh, family has, for a couple of years, relied on the care of a very dear woman to look after our two kids. And two months ago, she experienced a very sudden and unexpected decline in her health and was diagnosed with cancer. This happened suddenly. She left us 
for diagnostic testing and never came back the next day. And we've been involved in having some updates enough to know that the type of cancer she has has a very poor survival rate and that she's undergoing chemo and radiation but not doing well with treatment and having a hard time. My question is whether or not I should force the issue of trying to see her in anticipation of the idea that she may not be with us in this world for much longer. Two months have passed and we've moved on with childcare arrangements and my kids aren't asking about her anymore and it feels awkward to bring up such a morbid topic with kids who are still pretty young, they're eight and five. But it also feels wrong to let this person fade away out of our lives and not ever have a chance to say goodbye properly. After all, this is a person who said, I love you to my kids, and they said it back to her for a couple of years. I don't know how to handle the situation, and I'm hoping you guys may have some good ideas or at least some advice from your own experiences. I love the podcast. Thanks so much. Bye. Hmm. Yeah, it's a hard one. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I the first thing that jumps to my mind is the, and the, the kid's age and everything is that it might be an opportunity to have a conversation and have them make something to communicate to her, right? Like to create some homemade art or cards, you know, give them the opportunity to express themselves, pull up their great memories. Um, and also for her to receive something from them would probably be really wonderful, too. Um I totally get having just, you know, recently experienced a death in my family of somebody my kids were close to on the one hand and on the other hand, you know, sort of geographically removed from um, the this idea around not uh, pulling your kids into a situation that is dark. Um, and, you know, the, the, that kind of decline in death is really difficult. Um, so I really understand wanting to keep those protections in place. But you know, at some point they may ask, you know, whatever happened to dot, 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 and maybe figuring out a way to address it and having them do something creative, do something where they're actually creating something that can be mailed or sent or delivered might be a nice sort of family project, a way to both have a conversation and um, communicate uh, with her at the same time. Yeah, I mean, that's pretty much what I was going to say. I mean, yeah, my experience with this is, you know, my, my mom died in the home when my kids were very young. And um, they, you know, they didn't see her at her worst, worst, really. Um, but I, it was not, it wasn't ideal. It's not the situation that you I would have drawn up if I could have drawn up how that whole end of life thing would have gone for her um, and how they experienced it. It, it. it is a lot. And my own memories of being a little kid and I come from a long line of people well so i had an uncle who died when i was very young and you know i just remember like being taken in to see him when i was like eight and it was like i'm supposed to connect with him but it was just weird alienating off-putting and and most importantly when i reflect back on it the primary feeling of that experience was fear and discomfort and perhaps even disgust but there was no sense of connection right i didn't get well, I got to say goodbye to him, or this was a fi- this was a, a closing of a chapter, and it didn't have that sense of resolution and transition that I think we search for when we try to bring kids to see people who we know are going to be dying. So, to me, um, the safest and best way to do that is what Rebecca suggested, which is through a letter or a work of art or something that allows the kids to make that and process those feelings, open up that discussion to whatever extent that discussion opens up around what is death and what is the end of life. And these are big issues that are going to come up. Uh, and they get to do that free of the confusion and fear and discomfort of seeing someone at end of life in a hospital bed, which can be a bit much. 
I think, for kids that age. So I would second Rebecca's recommendation uh, to make something, allow the kids to draw something, create something, write something. Um, And I think that would mean a lot to her if she was able to see that. One of the questions I think the, the caller is bringing up is should she even tell the kids about it, though? Is there an argument for, since the kids have stopped asking about this former nanny, is there an argument for just not mentioning it to them? Uh, I don't know about that. I mean, I, I, I just, I think that they just says what they're eight and ten. I mean, that's I think eight still and five. No, eight, eight and five. Oh, eight, eight and five. Okay. Well, the eight-year-old anyway is about to enter an age where he or she very likely will start asking questions about childhood stuff, and I don't know. I mean, maybe the five-year. I don't know. That's a really tough one. It's hard. Always hard for me to make any case ag- against telling your kids what's going on. I, I, I am a big fan of transparency with children. I think that it engenders Mm. trust. I think that it makes them ask smarter, better questions later when they have context. I think that it helps inform sort of future uh, emotional growth and decision making. And there are different ways to be transparent with different age kids. I've just never been a fan of the the dog went to a farm upstate uh, model of parenting where we just we just, you know, by omission, um, don't don't mm. let the kids in on the important things that are happening in life around us. I'm just I'm not a fan of that. Yeah, I mean, I think the other argument for it too, because I, I tend to agree with Rebecca, and I, I do think there's certainly some nuance in how you bring it up. I don't know that you sort of like announce at dinner, hey, this, you know. But I do think that one of the arguments for having the conversation in its entirety is that I don't think you want to have a situation where. Three years later, the kids are like, hey, whatever happened to What's-Her-Face? And then you're like, well, she died, but we didn't tell you. I think that that is a little bit awkward and weird. Um, So I think that one of the things that you can always do is just say that, you know, this person, the reason, uh, hey, I want to tell you guys, this person is really sick. They're not feeling well, and they would love to get something from you to let them know that you love them and think about them and something nice that would just make them happy and brighten their day. And then you can let the kids guide the conversation. And my, my, if I was a betting man, I'd put money on the fact that one of the kids would want to find out more. How sick? Is this person going to die? What does that mean? And then you can kind of like give them the conversation that they're ready for, that they're asking for. But uh, so I do think that I guess I do think that it it should be introduced. I don't know that I buy an argument for just skipping the topic altogether. Gabe, what do you think? I think you're probably right. I, you know, I my like natural tendency is probably more often than Rebecca's to try to keep things from them that are painful or uncomfortable. I I can see how that's often more about me protecting my own feelings or my own sense of their innocence or whatever than it is about what's actually good for them. But I hate being the one who has to like confront them with the brutal realities of the world in that moment where you realize that all life is finite and everything and everyone you love will someday be as dust is not like an awesome moment that everybody loves from their childhood or their children's childhood. Um, and so I, I hear in that call, maybe I'm projecting, but I hear that caller sort of wanting to like an urge to back away from that conversation. And I am sympathetic to that urge. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. I like the idea of saying she's very sick and I like the idea of saying like let's make her something because that would mean a lot to her and I think probably that does lead to a deeper conversation and probably that's good. I think if you do that, if you follow that route, then one of the many things that you have to be ready for is um, if you're telling a five-year-old about death for the first time like for real in any kind of immediate way. 
um, then you're open. Like the real issue is not the nanny who they have stopped thinking about right. and asking about. The real issue is them and their parents. It's them and you. Yeah. yeah right. And, right. And and so you got to be ready to like see those things coming and address them, even if the kid doesn't say it to you directly, and figure out how to be reassuring about that. Even though, of course, um, we are basically faking it when we reassure our children <laughs> about mortality. So um, I don't blame you for wanting to avoid that conversation, but I I, uh, I must reluctantly agree with my colleagues that um, you, <laughs> you probably shouldn't avoid it for too long. You know, and I just want to add one thing. It, it It is hard, but that doesn't mean necessarily that we shouldn't do it. I mean, I, I just <laughs> – this is kind of funny, but I, I'm a little bit of a gallows humor guy if that hasn't come through yet. But uh, a couple of uh, – <laughs> I just remember this thing that happened when the kids were – God, Joe probably remembers how old they were. I'm going to say something like five and three. And we were reading some book, some beautiful children's book with painted about this woman and this girl and everything is going. She's living in New Mexico and there's all these beautiful paintings of like the sky and the sunset, reds and glorious oranges in the sky. And we're reading the story and the kids are engrossed and then we turn the page and then all of a sudden it's like, <laughs> it's like and the mother died. And we didn't know that was coming in the book. The kids didn't know that was coming. And they both burst into wailing instantly on this spot. I mean, they just fell apart. It took both parents to console them and comfort them. They just had no idea that was happening. And, and it was so surprising and unsettling for us. Um, and, and you probably had like another plan for that morning. <laughs> that was like, not you, what I thought. You was were going to go to the farmers market or something. <laughs> that's, that's exactly right. We were we were just kind of killing time before we went to the playground. We didn't know we were going to introduce mortality in this in this moment. Well, here you but, are. Uh, that's what's happening now. And yet here we are. Yeah. And and you know and yeah and that was the that was the first time we had that conversation. You know about what that is, and it wasn't the last time because. Death, like this birds and bees sex conversation, is something that you don't have once. You have it in many iterations over the course of years. And and everything that's communicated about it is not just communicated by what you say. It's communicated by what you do, who you are, how you deal with life, how you deal with loss, how you deal with transition. So I just want to put a plug in that like the conversation about death is never pinned to one moment. It's... Mm all of the way that you live your life. And so it's important not to make the mistake, I think, of putting too much pressure on, well, if we have this one moment, that's it. That's the death talk. And then it's all over. I never get a chance to do it right again. You know? Damn. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> wish we could do one and get it over with. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> all right. Um, good luck, Hannah. And um, let us know what you decide to do. All right. Our second call is from Jen. Hi, my name is Jen. I'm in New York. Um, I have a two-year-old son. He is very friendly. Um, in particular, he loves to hug. Um, when he sees a child that is upset, um, whether he's the cause of that kid being upset or not, he'll run over and hug that kid. Often when um, he meets a new kid, like on the playground, he'll run over and hug that kid, which, you know, empathy, great, <clears throat> except for the fact that He's been freaking some kids out because he's a stranger and he's going over and invading their personal space. Um, he's not a big kid, but he's kind of an aggressive hugger. So I'm wondering what to do because I don't want to discourage him from, you know, that empathetic response. 
Um, I want him to continue to be outgoing and friendly, but how do you explain the concept of personal space to a two-year-old? I'd love your thoughts. Thanks so much. (laughs) (laughs) Most adorable Uh, problem ever, right? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I understand why she's concerned because, yeah, I mean, you certainly wouldn't be comfortable with a 12-year-old boy who was walking around, throwing his arms around complete strangers all the time, but two still is a baby, and that's tough. I mean, I would say try to perhaps shape the behavior a little bit, like, you know, say it's wonderful that you feel like you want to hug, but maybe instead ask, are you okay? You know, just try to, you know, push the kid toward shifting how that behavior, how that, how those feelings manifest themselves. The same way we do when, you know, kids hit is we say, use your words, you know, maybe the use your words approach for this might, might be the way to handle it because, uh, yeah, I mean, sweet, but I can I can totally understand why some other kids and, and more importantly, some other parents might be a little <laughs> uh, put off by the two year old hug monster, especially as he starts getting bigger. When Eliza was in uh, in her first preschool class, like when she was two, um, the rule they had was that you couldn't do hugs, I think, presumably for exactly this reason. Um, and instead, what you could do is you could say to the other kid, would you like a gentle touch? And so worse. for a while, <laughs> for a while, she would she would go up to people and say, "Would you like a gentle touch?" And and often when they were sad, they would say yes, and and she would just gently sort of stroke their arm or their back, uh, and and it was a like not even um, a particularly vigorous gentle touch couldn't be injurious in the way that a hug could. So I I think the caller should suggest or should should instruct her kid to to substitute gentle touches for hugs and also to always ask permission because sometimes people don't want a gentle touch it turns out yeah I, as i've yeah, learned I <laughs> <laughs> um yeah i think that's right i also think that there's a little bit of a, an assumption underneath this question that could probably stand to be brought out to light which is that there is somehow um a, a difference between you know that, that the choices between letting the kid hug unrestrained and letting the kid have empathy. And not only is that are, are those not opposites, they're actually the exact same thing because this is just an advanced level of empathy from where the kid is at right now because the empathy that you're trying to impart is having a certain amount of empathy for other people's feeling of personal space and safety. Mm-hmm. And one of the mistakes that we we always make is um, the belief that we have decided how to help people, and so we're just going to go do it. And if they don't like it, then screw them because we're helping, right? And, like, that's not an empathetic nor helpful way to be kind and loving towards someone. It's right. really important that if you are trying to be kind and loving towards someone, that the step one is understanding what which actions, words, expressions of kindness work for them and which ones don't. That's really important. And, and, and like kind of the, one of the great mistakes is this like insistence on your own way of being a good person, much to, you know, to the exclusion of anyone else's feelings, which quite frankly makes you to an asshole. So I would say that in the case of this two-year-old, this is part of the same conversation. It's so great that you want to hug people. And you should also know that sometimes, even though hugging feels good for you, it might not feel great to the other person. So one way to find out is, and then we go into like, Asking permission, maybe substituting gentle touch as an idea because it's like there's so many different kinds of people who have so many feelings that we can't properly guess what their right thing is. So maybe we should ask them kind of thing. But um, this idea that it's either let him hug kind of uh, unfettered or 
you stifle his empathy. I don't actually agree that, that, that those are the choices on the table. All right. Lots of things to try there. Um, Jen, good luck with your delightful little hugger. Time for recommendations. Rebecca, what do you recommend? Well, I would recommend a, a, you know, I don't know if you guys have ever discussed this on the show before, but um, this is something that I've been doing for a while and it works really well uh, in those moments where you're trying to get your kid to do something and you really want to like just say like you cannot use your phone during this time and you know that even if you say give me your phone and you take it and you put it somewhere that that might not even necessarily like to completely take it out of play if you have a particularly sneaky kid. <laughs> um, one of the things that I do sometimes in those emergency situations is I deploy the find my iPhone lost phone feature. It works on iPads, iPhones, and iMac computers, MacBook computers, where you can uh, you know, find it. Um, you say that that device is lost and then it actually allows you to type a message in that shows up on the screen. And, you know, this is actually designed for if some stranger finds your iPhone, like you can say, please call me, here's my phone number, uh, you know, to help me get my phone back. But what you can type on the screen is something like, let me know when you're done with your homework and I'll turn your phone back on, son. <laughs> you can type whatever you want on the screen to sort of clearly convey the message that like your device has been locked down on purpose. Here's why. And it will get turned <laughs> back on when you do the thing that it specifically says you need to do. Uh, you'd be amazed at how well it works for cleaning out closets. You'd be amazed at how it works, how well it works for finishing, you know, yard work or, you know, getting school assignments done. Um, so yes, this lost phone feature on Find My iPhone comes in very, very handy all the time for me. And I recommend using it for this purpose if you have kids who aren't good at managing their own device time. That's fantastic. Oh, that is excellent. <laughs> this is this is what I've been looking for my whole life. Some technological way to just big brother fly in on my kids and be like, ha I own the Matrix now, children. Like, that's what that's I'm right. looking for. I sort you of want someone to do me. that with my iPhone, though. <laughs> <laughs> like, c can you do that? Can you shut off Twitter until I've done whatever is the thing I'm supposed to? Anyway. No um, one tweet until I finish this piece, everyone. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Um, right. Carvel, what do you recommend? So I'm recommending a book uh, called Undefeated, and the subtitle is Jim Thorpe and the Carlisle Indian School Football Team. It's by a writer named Steve Shinkin, I believe is how you pronounce it, Shinkin. And uh, uh, not plugging myself, but I did review this book for the New York Times a couple of months ago. Um, but I also had my son read the galley copy that they sent me, and he is not a big reader. He does not like reading. He thinks reading is a conspiracy to make kids – uh, into t tools of the system. Um, <laughs> God bless him. <laughs> <laughs> and broccoli. Also yeah, a conspiracy. Exactly. <laughs> but <laughs> bedtimes. But he also, um, but he did, I did kind of semi-force him. I don't remember how. I, You know, a combination of strong arming and bribing. I got him to read this book and he was fascinated with it. The thing I like about Steve Shankin, and I, and I wrote about this, is he writes about these historical points of view, these terrible things that have happened in history, and he doesn't shy away from them. This book is probably for kids around, I think the recommended reading level is about middle school, ages 10 and up. 
And uh, he is not shy about talking about the history of Native Americans in this country. And at the same time, he does it in a way that somehow seems like to not be horrifying to kids, but definitely gives them a full grasp. And and I noticed with my son, he just had a lot more curiosity about this stuff after he read this book. But the book isn't focused necessarily on that. It's focused on Jim Thorpe himself, his history, his life, and that football team at Carlisle, which actually is the team that invented modern football, although no one knows that. And they were this tiny, small team that was part of this kind of like Indian um, re-education situation, this shady thing where they would take kids from their families and try to force them into Western culture. They had this tiny school. This school formed a football team. Jim Thorpe was the player on that team. And then they went out and beat everyone, Harvard, Yale, Penn, all the great teams. They went out and beat them in one season. And the book covers that, but it covers so much more. Um, So that's my recommendation. It's called Undefeated, Jim Thorpe and the Carlisle Indian School football team. Sounds great. Nice. Uh, I am going to recommend a brand new animated television series uh, that began earlier this month on the Disney Channel. Uh, It's called Pat the Dog. We turned on the TV when we were in, uh, we were out of town and there was some show on and the kids were like, oh, this is good. And it turned. I looked it up. It turns out it's based on a smartphone game. What could possibly be more terrible sounding than a new Disney Channel animated series based on a smartphone game? But if you, like me, are sort of annoyed with contemporary cartoons because, like, when I was growing up, the cartoon, the good cartoons were like there's a mouse running along a construction site and there's a cat chasing it and then an anvil drops on the cat's head. Uh, and, <laughs> and you're annoyed stuff. that today your kids are watching cartoons where it's like, let's all put on a big show about the power of friendship to save the, the <laughs> trees or whatever. Like it's all it's all these these <laughs> computer generated animation shapes, these spheres sort of talking to each other a lot. And and I don't need to watch these guys talking to each other. What I want is like physical comedy about animals from my cartoons. <laughs> and Pat the dog, uh, it appears to be like there's a dog getting into all kinds of physical stri- scrapes. There's little seven minute um the episodes are like seven minutes long and they all are sort of high concept and and physically oriented and beautifully choreographed and timed um so if you um miss the classic tom and jerry style animation um it's not that good but give pat the dog a try <laughs> that's my recommendation for the week that sounds awesome it, right yeah, are, you, are you recommending this for kids or for yourself i'm i'm recommending it for a thing that you can put on for your kids that you will actually secretly <laughs> quite enjoy but you yeah, can okay. also that say well sense. here i am taking care of my kids it's <laughs> it, it's on that level that's our show. Mom and Dad Are Fighting is produced by Benjamin Frisch. If you have a question that you'd like us to tackle, give us a call at 424-255-7833. Visit us on Facebook at facebook.com slash Fighting. For Carvel Wallace and Rebecca Lavoie, I'm Gabriel Roth, and we'll be back next week. 